Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 80 for the 2nd 3rd of July 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the fake story of Planet X, part 7, Mark Hazelwood's Claims. Mark Hazelwood wrote two books, and in the first one he claimed that Planet X would swing by and do bad stuff to Earth in May of 2003. After that didn't happen, he wrote another book that claimed that it still would happen, but he didn't really give a date, although he later said it would happen within about three and a half years. Now, I realize that you may be thinking that this sounds an awful lot like Nancy Leader, or at least if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. I'll get to that in a bit. You might also be wondering why I would devote another episode to something like this. The reasons are varied, but the main ones are that, while there's comparatively little astronomy that goes into Mark's claims when compared with Nancy's, there's a more interesting narrative and a story to tell here than what we got with Nancy Leader, and it's much more conspiracy-based. I find that personally interesting, and hopefully most of you will as well and there will be some coast-to-coast clips. Well, there will be a lot of coast-to-coast AM clips. For those of you who might be new to the podcast, there aren't usually quite this many. Now, I normally like to start with a little bit of background information, then get into the claim, and then apply the background to the claim. That gets really to the how-we-know-what-we-know-why-we-know model that I really like from Astronomy Cast. But I'm now on the fake story of Planet X Part 7, and if you've been listening for a while, you definitely have enough background. If you're a new listener, then you should go back to episode 13 for the real and historic story of Planet X. Mark Hazelwood's claims don't have much to do with real science of a possible Planet X. When describing a solar system object, there are usually a couple things that we want to know. We want to know its mass, We want to know its diameter, its orbit, and bulk composition, like is it a gas giant, or is it a terrestrial-type object, an asteroid-type object, a comet, that kind of thing. That's really the basic standard information that kids memorize for third-grade tests. Mark Hazelwood's version of Planet X, as he describes it, has a mass of three to five times Earth, and that it's very dense. He never gives us a diameter. He does say that it's a brown dwarf star, which should mean that it's mostly hydrogen, sort of a Jupiter-like in composition, between about 13 and 80 times the mass of Jupiter. It also means, if it's a brown dwarf, that it has a diameter a few times the size of Jupiter. Jupiter's diameter is about 10 times Earth's, and the Sun's diameter is about 10 times Jupiter's, so it's going to be between about 1 and 10 Jupiter diameters. Hazelwood also claims that the planet is on an elliptical orbit that takes it far away from the Sun to between Earth and the Sun, although he claims that the perihelion, the closest solar approach, varies from one orbit to the next. The orbital period, he claims, is about 3,600 years, or, quote, probably closer to 3,650 years average, end quote. I really could end the podcast in the next few minutes, I don't have to go beyond this basic information to show that he's wrong, or at least incredibly inconsistent with this fundamental story, these fundamental bits of information. First is the mass. If the object is a brown dwarf, by definition, it is a failed star, 
so it's less than 80 times the mass of Jupiter. Note that the Sun is around 1,000 times the mass of Jupiter. But it also has to be more than 13 times the mass of Jupiter. Jupiter is around roughly 317.83 times the mass of Earth. So mass-wise, it can't be both 3 to 5 times the mass of Earth and 13 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter. That's impossible, and it's a discrepancy by over a factor of 1,000. But this would also mean it's a brown dwarf, not a planet. If I were reading this guy's stuff on a random internet forum, which is where he originated, my knee-jerk conclusion would be that he's throwing stuff together in a word salad of astronomy terms without really knowing what they mean, but he's trying to sound smart, you know, kind of like Deepak Chopra using quantum. But then there's the orbit. I'll refer you to episode 23 for why a planet with a 3,600-year orbit is as close to a this-doesn't-exist certainty as we can say in science. Probably my favorite reason for why this can't exist is the long-term stability of the asteroid belt. This means that the asteroid belt, the orbits of all the asteroids in the belt, are pretty stable. And that's not possible if you have a massive object going through it twice every 3,600 years, you know, once inbound, once outbound. But Mark Hazelwood's twist is that the object changes perihelion, again the closest approach to the Sun, from one orbit to the next. This really doesn't make sense. He doesn't come out directly to say that, but when asked how close it would get to the Sun, in interviews he responds by saying that, quote, this time it would be between Earth and the Sun, as in implying that it changes between different orbits. A large planet like Jupiter or even Saturn could certainly alter the orbit of a object three to five times the mass of Earth. But there is no way that it's going to alter the orbit of an object the size of a brown dwarf. Rather, the brown dwarf is going to alter the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn and the other planets that it passes near to. That means that its orbit should be relatively stable, but that other solar system objects, you know, the ones that we actually observe on stable orbits, wouldn't be, like the planets. In other words, This portion of the show is being brought to you by Gravity. When wanting to walk around on the side of our planet without inconveniently being flung to the far reaches of the solar system, more people choose gravity than any other force in the universe. So remember, when something has got you down, it's probably gravity. Clean, dependable, low-maintenance gravity. This brings up a bit of a side note on the Planet X story, one that is more Mark's than Nancy's. He claims that Planet X is actually an object that orbits like a pendulum between the Sun and the Sun's binary companion star. Well, Planet X is uh, uh, Roman numeral number 10. Right. That would mean the 10th planet in our solar system. Right. Um, it orbits uh, around not just uh, our Sun, but our Sun's dark twin that lies towards Orion. In my book, I have a diagram from uh, the 1987 edition of a scientific uh, encyclopedia that shows where that dark sun is, that uh, dark star, and planet X, or the 10th planet, right between it. So instead of orbiting around one sun or the other, this, this rogue planet, failed star, uh, brown dwarf, if you will, um, simply uh, goes back and forth in a pendulum 
like orbit so that uh, why don't we see it well we do see it I mean uh, I've gotten whispers from several different people from observatories that they've been watching it now uh, well the Russians have known about it for at least three years later in the interview he also claims that this companion star is the Sun's twin and that it's about 20 AU out in other words it's about at the orbit of Uranus Yes, a star that only Mark Hazelwood knows about, plus some top-secret NASA people and some Russians that I'll discuss in a bit, is around the orbit of Uranus, but amateur astronomers and professional astronomers can't see it. A star. Now, it's been a while since I did some math, you know, other than baking cookies earlier today, so I figured it was about time. The absolute magnitude of a brown dwarf star is highly variable, but you could estimate it to be somewhere around 24-ish. Absolute magnitude is the brightness of an object at 10 parsecs away, roughly 32 light years. The magnitude scale is where negative numbers are bright, positive numbers are faint, and it's a log scale so a change of 2.5 magnitudes is a factor of 10 change in brightness. Sixth magnitude is the faintest you can see from a dark sky sight with the unaided eye. For those of us at TAM right now, the brightest you can probably see from here, Las Vegas, is around zeroth magnitude if you're on the strip. Anyway, the point is 24th magnitude is really, really faint. But you can use an equation called the distance modulus to figure out how bright it would appear at any distance. Plug 20AU into the equation, and you get an apparent magnitude of about negative one. That would make it roughly the fifth brightest object in the sky, visible during the day if you had a telescope, extremely bright at night, and that's just invisible light. It would be even brighter in the infrared, and it would also reflect sunlight on top of the light that it emits itself from being hot. And a friggin' star near the orbit of Uranus is going to severely alter the orbits of all of the planets, and yet we don't see that. Now, I'll talk more about this in the Binary Sun episode that's upcoming, but in the meantime, again, just to put it succinctly, this is not possible. There is no way to keep something like this secret. Ancient astronomers 5,000 years ago would have seen deviations in the orbits of Jupiter, Saturn, etc., Still on this aside, though, he also has some other interesting ideas about this quote-unquote star and Planet X. It's headed towards being pulled faster and faster by its own gravity and the sun's gravity towards it. You know, at the last minute it veers away because, you know, I don't know if you're aware that just within the last oh, year or so, uh, the new theory of gravity is it's a particle flow in both directions, and that's what uh, will keep it from hitting the sun. It'll just sail on by, and it slows it down at the last moment uh, before uh, it passes by. If that sounds like Nancy Leader from episode 76, it pretty much is. With that said, before we go any further, I think it's important to address the claims made against him by other Planet X proponents, mainly that he stole their work. In particular, Nancy Leader claimed this and was very angry about it. In fact, if you do an internet search for Mark Hazelwood, his name, the very first page, at least on a Google search, is Nancy Leader's, saying that he stole her work. 
Even her Zeta aliens that she channels but claims she doesn't channel said that Hazelwood copied Nancy's ideas. Art Bell, in his 2002 interview, although in George Norrie's 2004 interview with Hazelwood, Hazelwood claimed that it was a 2001 interview, he was wrong, but anyway, in Art's 2002 interview, this issue was raised. Art backed him up, and Mark then claimed that his book cites over a hundred different people for their information, including Nancy, including Zechariah Sitchin, also including remote viewers and prophets such as Gordon Michael Scallion. Skeptic, as in the Skeptic's Dictionary, has a nice little article on Gordon Michael Scallion, if you're interested. I'll just mention that, according to Scallion, Denver, Colorado should have been beachfront property by 1998. Strange that I can't see the Pacific Ocean from my apartment. As an independent observer, I have to agree with Nancy. As I was listening and then re-listening and then re-re-listening to about four hours of Hazelwood's interviews, next to half of my notes of various parts of his claims, I added a note that this was nearly identical to Nancy Leader. Phil Plate on his page on Hazelwood also noticed the same thing, and he mentions Nancy's claims against Hazelwood. Hazelwood later shot back by claiming that Nancy herself was a disinformation agent, but that's an issue that I want to talk about in maybe about 10 to 15 minutes. Mark cites absolutely no evidence for his claims. Well, no real science evidence. The evidence he does cite, besides the writings of Nancy and Sitchin and others, are that earthquakes were increasing as Planet X approached, which they weren't, volcanic activity increased as Planet X was approaching, it didn't, and that the climate was warming due to Planet X's approach. It is, but that's unrelated. He also stated several times that he was spiritually led to this conclusion, which is also why he wasn't afraid of putting it out there, because he would be made into a martyr if killed by the MIB, as in the Men in Black. Unlike Nancy, Mark was very conspiratorial. As I said, I want to get more into that in a bit, but at this point in the episode, the conspiracy manifests as his evidence. For example, a strong line of evidence was that he heard from a friend who heard from a friend who works at NASA that NASA knows about it, it's definitely coming, although NASA doesn't know if it will cause a pole shift or not. Or there's also this from his 2004 interview. You know, I got to talk to someone else who told me that he got to view this planet via a live Hubble link-up with 24 others uh, during a hush-hush meeting, the only reason he called me two or three days afterwards, this happened May 23rd, 2002, is because he would not have drew on his connections. He is also a triple doctorate like Father Malachi Martin um, and wanted to thank me and let me know without a shadow of a doubt that it's there, that it's incoming. Um, he said that the people that were calculating its its speed at the time, thought it would be here in 3.5 years. Since then, it has uh, f- speeded up and slowed down, according to this man, who won't allow me to say his name, and I won't. Uh, I've already gotten him in somewhat, some hot water from disclosing this. Um, anyway, according to uh, McKenney, that's exactly how an object like this should act 
uh, once it's uh, entered into the solar field, which goes out some 10 times beyond uh, uh, Pluto. There is a lot in there to dissect that shows that Mark really has no idea what he's talking about, and that's putting it kindly. The references to James McCanney will be addressed in a future episode, currently planned for probably sometime around late September-ish. It's the broader idea that he's relying completely on hearsay for his evidence, and that hearsay doesn't make any sense. Specifically, the claim about a live Hubble link-up, that's what I want to address at this point. As I said, it makes no sense. He's acting as though Hubble has, effectively, an eyepiece, or a webcam in place of an eyepiece where you can get some sort of live, continuous stream of image data. It doesn't work that way. Hubble has a few cameras, they've been replaced over the last 20-ish years or so, and they all have varying pixel scales, and they all operate in different colors of light, and they have different filters. There are numerous calibration steps for every separate pointing of Hubble, and most exposures last minutes to hours. You don't really get much from a 30th of a second image, which is what you'd get with sort of like a webcam type thing. This concept of a live link-up to view things as though you're at the telescope looking through the eyepiece is absurd, and it shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about, or that he just trusts these sources blindly and has no idea what they're talking about and that they're fooling him. But as with Nancy, Mark was very adamant in 2002 that Planet X would be visible to everyone by the summer of 2002, and that it would swing by and get very close to Earth in May 2003, just when Nancy claimed that it would come. How sure of this on a scale of 1 to 10? How, how uh, sure are you that this information is legit and accurate time-wise and in every other way? I would have never written this book if, uh, if I didn't know for sure. Okay, but that knowing is my knowing, and each person has to find their own individual knowing. That was really kind of wishy-washy, new age, knowing the secret kind of stuff, but he did say that he's pretty darn sure, like 100% sure, that Planet X would be coming by in 2003. Now, in what I promise is the last Coast to Coast clip for this episode, after his planet did not show up in 2003, the backtracking began. Here's a roughly two-and-a-half-minute exchange that took place in April 2004, where he tries to explain why he was wrong. If you don't want to listen to it, fast forward by 2 minutes and 27 seconds, starting now. Were you one of those who thought it would be around in uh, May 15th or so of last year? Uh, yes, I fell for that disinformation, admittedly. Uh, sometime in spring or summer, I thought it was going to come. I didn't wake up to this fact until the fall of 2002, when my colleague, Professor James McKinney, told me that uh, a popular uh, disinformation site had fabricated pictures of Planet X uh, that were taken with a large professional scope, not, like, uh, not with a smaller telescope mm -hmm. like they said they were, and they had uh, some NASA server codes that were hidden on them. Uh, this is from a lady who claims that she speaks to aliens. Uh, we, and we know her. And yeah, well, um, see, when I first was exposed to the subject matter, I really wasn't uh, 
well familiar with all the intricacies of what was happening and why it was happening so i simply took her at face value in the beginning and didn't understand her role as a disinformation agent attacking me and everyone else who uh, had some of the same information which was kind of odd i thought in the beginning but then finally uh, after much listening to james i didn't actually uh, listen to him the first time he told me that uh, this was her role but now it's become very clear she simply made silly the subject and that's why uh, they started way back in 95 is to you know translate this huge site into a number of different uh, languages and get people familiar with it such that they think the whole uh, Planet X situation is on the fringe and silly mm -hmm. and not worth paying mm -hmm. attention to. And they said that the object was coming in from the uh, opposite direction. So they have this little play act <laughs> all uh, set up with people uh, already designated to attack her, but they're from the same side. I felt the need to subject you to that because, as with many topics that I discuss, I think it's important to the narrative of what these claimants state in their own words. Nancy at least came up with an excuse that her singular source, the Zetas, told her a white lie. More on that in her episode, number 51. Mark, on the other hand, blamed everything on Nancy. I find this personally fascinating because it contradicts what he claimed about copying other people's work. He previously said that his story was based on over 100 different sources, including psychics and remote viewers, and that he was led to this via some sort of spiritual means. But here, he claimed that it was all Nancy's fault that he was wrong. Apparently, he relied on her for all of the details of when this would happen. One would think that if he gathered his information from over 100 different sources, that someone other than Nancy would have mentioned a date. It also gets to the broader conspiratorial take that Mark offers to the story itself, although the broader idea, uh, the conspiracy part, is not unique to Mark, but is typical of the majority of astronomy conspiracies. That despite the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of amateur astronomers in the world, plus roughly the 10,000 professional astronomers based on the International Astronomical Union membership, Somehow, the United States government is able to keep a planet that's just a few years away secret, be it 3 to 5 times the size of Earth or 13 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter. Also, with him at least, a star out by Uranus. He offers a multi-layered conspiracy of disinformation, where the first level is for people who don't know about it and are simply kept ignorant. The second level is those who do know about it, and those people are just you know, calmly reassured that it's not coming anywhere near here. I guess, according to Mark, I would be at that level in this hierarchy, where I'd be telling you guys, don't worry, it's okay, everything's okay, just keep moving along. The third level is the secret insiders, who have that live view of Hubble, they know that it exists, and they know everything about its orbit, but the disinformation is that it's not going to cause anything bad to happen. He also bought into the 1983 IRAS alleged discovery and then cover-up of Planet X, 
which was what I addressed in detail in episode 54. When Mark was active in this area, which was for roughly five years starting around 2000 or so, he vehemently lashed out at his critics, especially Phil Plate. I've put a link to Phil's page on the subject in the show notes for this episode. Hazelwood even went so far as to blame Phil and others for sending him fake Planet X images for him to post, and then Phil and others could then point out that they were other things like Jupiter's volcanic moon Io and discredit Mark. In other words, even if Mark was right in that professional astronomers were sending Mark stuff to post and discredit him, then Mark still bears the blame because it was he who was posting this stuff without actually doing any sort of investigation. Later, Mark even claimed that the same people who were behind the September 11th, 2001 conspiracy plan for the demolition of the World Trade Towers were also the ones behind this Planet X secrecy. So that's about the level of Mark Hazelwood's claims. There's very little that's original to his ideas. He obviously was wrong because he claimed that Planet X would get here over a decade ago. His evidence was hearsay that made no sense or was based on increasing natural disasters which weren't actually increasing, and the object he claimed was Planet X was not internally consistent, namely its mass and structure. But when confronted by any of this, it became a giant conspiracy. So, while even though I've covered a lot of these ideas before, there was still some new stuff in this narrative, and I think that it makes an interesting contribution to the ongoing fake story of Planet X Saga. There is no new news this episode, but as a reminder that if you see anything in the news that relates to a previous episode or material that I've talked about, please send it in and I may discuss it on a future new news segment. Since I'm recording this episode early, and it's a bit long, and I'm getting ready for TAM, and I haven't finished packing yet, there's no Q&A for this episode. But if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. I do have some feedback to discuss this episode, and it's based on some of the iTunes feedback that I've been neglecting for maybe a year or so. A few of them I'm just going to read because we all need a little pat on the back, and a few of them I'm going to respond to. First comes from the UK iTunes store from Rayos. Quote, Anyone that is fed up with listening to some of the rubbish conspiracy people spout, this podcast is for you. End quote. Thank you, Rayos. The Australia store has a person going by the name of Animal saying, Mmm, the quiet voice of a commonsensical intelligence finally is heard, and as time goes by and my nocturnal meandering through the skeptically inspired podcastic networks are witness to it, is getting louder. Stuart Robbins with Brian Dunning are the pillars of intelligence and pragmatism that will link laymen and scientists and eventually show the eccentric ideas of zealots and other lazy charlatans for what they are. Your podcast is informative, well-researched, honest, witty, and very well-spoken. That's my version of an Australian accent. In other words, I'm not going to insult a few of my listeners. 
There is the also pseudo astro fan posting in the Australian iTunes store. As others have said before me, you provide a cross between skeptoid and the bad astronomer, but you always have a new take on an old topic, or a new take on a new topic. I also enjoy the puzzler sections, which whilst I haven't been able to answer myself, always enjoy trying to figure it out for myself and listening next time for the answer." End quote. That's actually my goal, even with the old stuff. Explain it in a slightly different way with my own take so that people who may not have understood it elsewhere may know. Like, for example, when I taught a class and someone didn't understand a part of a lab, I asked someone who did to explain it in their own way. It worked. I mean, that's why, for example, I don't feel bad doing an episode in the near future about the Pioneer Anomaly. I know it's been covered to death on Astronomy Cast and Skeptic's Guide and various other places, but I hope to offer my own twist on the subject. From the U.S. store, we have PV in it. Bless Stuart's heart for having the patience to wade into the horse manure that is coast to coast in order to draw out clips relevant to the topic being discussed. My response is, I'm a masochist. Also from the U.S. store, we have Xmas Cookie. As a non-science type, I don't understand much of these podcasts, but I can't stop listening to them. Those skeptic genre offerings are almost as bad as the pseudoscientists, but this podcast is all about true intellectuality. So refreshing, that was all in caps. Be sure to check out all six, and now seven, of the fake Planet X episodes. I'm not going to disparage other podcasts, but I think it is something that I've noticed on some of the older ones, you know, ones with over 200 episodes or so. The hosts do tend to get a little jaded and sometimes simply dismissive of claims and just move on without actually exploring them. I know I'm guilty of that a little bit, but I do try to maintain or remain somewhat objective. Nigel's The Skeptical Review blog has a bit more of a discussion about this issue. The final bit is uh, also feedback from the U.S. store by Rap Radio. Quote, Stuart would be more listener-friendly if he wasn't clearly reading each and every word he speaks. He tends to fall into a boring drone. Episodes should be longer. End quote. That's not entirely true. When I did first start this podcast, I thoroughly intended to just have ideas jotted down and then to ad-lib everything. I quickly found that that took much longer than just writing everything down that I wanted to say because I spent way too much time going back and deleting stuff and then re-recording and deleting and re-recording, etc., etc. Still, though, even though I do have a narrative written down, some of the stuff is ad-libbed as I think of things while talking. Unfortunately, it's just the nature of the game, especially when doing this as one person. Since I'm not having a conversation and can't really play off of someone, I'm just playing off of myself, which sounds very dirty. I assure you I'm fully clothed. I've also listened to other shows that are much more obviously scripted. For example, Skeptoid or even The Reality Check. I just started listening to The Reality Check. Yay, Canadians. Um, As for episodes being longer, it's been a while since I addressed this bit of feedback, so I'll do it again. Episodes these days are as long as needed. The original goal was to cover one topic, like Skeptoid and like Astronomy Cast, as I've said several times. Uh, Imagine Skeptoid and Astronomy Cast had a baby, that's sort of how I envisioned this podcast to be. That's still the intent, but sometimes those singular topics take longer, like this one, and sometimes they take less time. I aim for roughly 30 minutes, and that's about the limit of my own attention span. 
But some stuff does take less time, and some stuff takes more time. It's just as long as it takes. This episode probably is going to be about 35 minutes long. I don't know how long yet, but you obviously do. I haven't finished recording it, but you've downloaded it and see the timestamp. I'm rambling. Anyway, that means that it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time effectively boils down to the question of whether the movie John Carter accurately predicted, or accurately portrayed, how well a human would be able to jump on Mars given Mars' lower gravity. No one submitted a correct response, although I am recording this episode a few days early since it's going out as I'm doing my workshop right now at TAM. The short answer is no. The longer answer can be done in a simple numerical way, and then a fudge factor could be added in. You can start with introductory physics equations of motion. These are called kinematic equations. You can use them to figure out how fast the initial velocity is for a person jumping on Earth to reach a height of about two and a half meters. You do have to assume a time span over which the jump takes place, though. I assumed about two seconds. You then get an initial velocity of about 11.5 meters per second. Then, you can go back to the kinematic equations, replace Earth's gravity with Mars, which is about one-third of Earth's. You can then assume the same initial velocity. Again, the jump takes place in two seconds. And you can calculate that the person would have been able to jump to a height of about 14.5 meters on Mars, or about 48 feet. That's high, but it's not several hundred feet. Similarly, you could do the same thing for jumping a distance of 9 meters. Doing the math, you get around 21 meters for Mars, or nearly 69 feet. If you assume different times over which the jump took place, you'll get different values, but the end result is roughly the same. You can jump higher and farther on Mars than you can on Earth, everything else being equal. The fudge factor comes in when you have to consider things like the act of jumping itself. Before your feet leave the ground, your muscles don't have to work as hard to overcome gravity on Mars as they do on Earth, so you could probably leave the ground with a greater initial velocity. However, I don't think that this is enough to change the results by too much, and you'd need to change them by around a factor of 5 to 10 in order to get the kind of results that John Carter did in the movie. Therefore, the short answer comes back, no. The movie did not actually accurately portray the human jumping ability on Mars. Probably not surprisingly. This episode, with the main segment being yet another version of Planet X, the puzzler deals with Mars. It's a puzzle that I've adapted from a suggestion that was sent in over a year ago by Meredith from Santa Clarita, California, United States. On its current orbit, could Mars ever appear as large as our moon? If not, why not? And if not, how close would it need to be to Earth to appear as large as the moon? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And while I haven't entirely decided what the next episode will be, I'm leaning towards the creationist get-out-of-an-old-universe-free card of the speed of light not being constant. So, if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send them in. Just one announcement this episode. If you're a relatively new listener, welcome to the podcast. Please join us on Facebook. Just search for Exposing Pseudoastronomy or go to facebook.com slash exposingpseudoastronomy. 
You can also find the podcast on Twitter as at pseudoastro, that's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O, or you can send an email and let me know what you think of the show and how you found it. I really do like to know how people hear about the show. That wraps up this topic for the 80th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it, and learned a little, or a lot, or something at least, at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you could send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for this episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you could send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, even if it takes me more than a year to get back to you. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends, family, and numerous random people that you'll probably never meet in real life. 